3, 31 to 39. This point, Joab, Joab, David's nephew, one of his military commanders, has murdered Abner, who David has made peace with, Shalom. Abner came to the king on the king's terms, as vile and as wicked as he had been, and, the da- and David had made reconciliation with him, this anointed one. And, and then Joab, who did not agree with that, went and killed Abner, and now David has this public funeral for Abner. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. David with a public fast. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. Isn't that beautiful? Everything the king did pleased all the people. That's the way it should be. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. In other words, He had the might to do something more severe, but he is a gentle king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, are more severe than I. In other words, their natural way of doing things is more severe than the way the anointed king does things. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Let's pray. Father, we believe that 2 Samuel 4 was inspired by your spirit, breathed out by your spirit for the people of God, Fisherville, in January of 2020. We believe this is a word for us, and we pray that you would use this week preacher to communicate the significance, the profitability, and the relevance of this text for your people. And we pray that your people would have ears to hear And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is, this year, 2020, is the 495th anniversary of what is perhaps the most important book that was written during the time of the Reformation. Luther certainly believed that. The book is Martin Luther's On the Bondage of the Will. He considered it his, his crown jewel. It was his magnum opus. And in this book, he addressed divine sovereignty, human freedom, God's governance of and over evil, and all other related matters. And in that book, Luther argues that God is sovereign, even over evil. But it's not simple to describe God's relationship to evil. When moral evil occurs, yes, God is still sovereign, but only the creature who commits that evil is guilty of wrongdoing. That is because the creature's intent in that evil act is evil, but God's intent is not. And and scripture assigns guilt based on the intentions of the parties involved. And so Luther will use 
In his book, for example, the Genesis account of Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery to the passing Ishmaelites as he will go into uh, to Egypt. Both God and Joseph's brothers, the text tells us, sent Joseph to Egypt. But only the brothers were guilty of evil because only the brothers had evil intent. In fact, two times in the text, Genesis 45, when, when Joseph is, it has revealed himself to his brothers, Joseph's brothers, he refers to his brothers as having sold him into Egypt. So they're culpable. The text will not allow us to see these brothers as mere puppets of divine sovereignty in order to escape some kind of culpability. And yet, Joseph contends in that text no less than three times that it was God who sent him into Egypt. And so by the end, God, uh, Joseph argues that it was not the brothers who sent him into Egypt. It was God who sent him into Egypt. Genesis 45, verse 8. All of this to say that God is no less in control of evil than he is of good. Now, he has a different relationship to evil. God unilaterally affects that which is good. But there's an asymmetrical relationship between God's relationship to evil and his relationship to good. He unilaterally affects good. And yet with evil, he can restrain his common grace in order to bring about purposes that are much more glorious than we could ever envision. God isn't pleased with evil in and of itself, but he does govern it so as to bring about his greater kingdom good. We see that today in chapter 4. God employing evil to achieve his righteous purposes. Of course, the events we see in chapter 4 did not come out of the blue. Last week, again, we saw Joab murdered Abner um, because he did not believe Abner was sincere when he came to the king. Furthermore, it was an act of a vigilante because Abner had killed his brother, Azahel. And so David distanced himself from Joab's action because David had made peace with Abner. And let's not lose sight of the fact here, though, that as chapter 4 begins, David is still in the waiting stage. And so that's why he's had to make this public attestation that he was not involved in Abner's murder because he recognized that the northern tribes would easily accuse him of being complicit in his murder. And that reminds us that David, though he was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, is still in this long waiting stage, unable to take action to bring his coronation into effect. But what we're going to see here is that all the while in the waiting, God is removing the impediments, the obstacles to David's throne. God is sovereign. Even with all the evil we're going to see in chapter 4, God is at work removing the impediments, the obstacles to David's throne. Even as he has been removing the impediments in David's heart. Even in the waiting, God has been preparing David to be God's man. He wasn't ready. And we've seen that through the Davidic narrative. God had been the one who anointed David to be king in the first place. And it was his job to fulfill the promise. Isn't that a hopeful thought? It was his job, not David's job, to fulfill the promise. So, so for instance, the, the murder of Abner could have caused a permanent breach between the northern tribes and Judah, the southern tribe. 
which would have prevented David from being king over all the tribes, which was God's promise. And yet in God's providence, the opposite thing happens. We're going to see that this week. We're going to see that next time. The death of Abner actually weakened a weak king even further. That weak king being Ishbosheth. That brings us to the first part of chapter 4, the diminishing house of Saul. When Ishbosheth, verse 1, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Literally, his hands dropped or his hands were weakened, which is an idiom for losing hope, losing courage, likely because he feared he was next. And, and Ishbosheth's demise reminds us how easily overthrown are the wicked who appear to pose a threat to the people of God and to the kingdom of God. That's so important for us to remember. In a day when it seems like wickedness has won the day, that evil prevails, and Ishbosheth's demise reminds us that God is in control, and the king is seated at the right hand of God, and he cannot be dethroned. As we sang this morning, wasn't that wonderful to sing a psalm, Psalm 2? Uh, Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ richly indwell you, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. In Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. But verse 4 tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And here is a result. All Israel, it says, was dismayed. You know, dismay always results when you learn that what rules you can't deliver on what it promised. That's always the result. When that which rules you does not and cannot deliver on what it promised. And that's where Israel, that is the people of God who, who had sided with Ishbosheth, were at this point. And the question I'm sure they were asking is, what's now going to happen to them? After all, they had, they had been on the wrong side of history. They had been on the side of this, this defeated king, Ishbosheth. Of course, they had recently been encouraged in chapter 3 by Abner that hope lie with David. We saw that in chapter 3. But at this point, for all they knew, David had been complicit in the murder of Abner. They, they didn't know. And then this moment of vulnerability, and this is a very vulnerable place for the northern tribes Two of Ishbosheth's military leaders decide to use this king's reversal of fortunes to their advantage. Notice in verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baanah, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim. He's given us history here and have been sojourners there to this day. So the question here is even whether they were Jews or Hebrews. That would be an anachronism to call them a Jew at this point. But captains of raiding bands is ominous language given the fact that that terminology was used of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
but a clue that chapter 4 is ultimately centered on God's taking on the obligation to remove the obstacles to David's throne is found in a verse in verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. It's almost like it's a throwaway line. Of course, we know better. Notice in verse 4, out of the blue, it just says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. So this is Saul's grandson. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. We're going to read about him again, but not in this chapter. The narrator moves on as if verse 4 didn't happen. It's all, almost arbitrary just to throw that line in there and then to move on to speak about these two, these two men that have already been introduced why the arbitrary nature of this verse? Well, I think that's the writer's literary strategy. Its arbitrariness is actually making the point for us. The writer makes the statement about Mephibosheth, who's lame in his feet, and then he moves on. It reveals just another way by which the Lord was taking away Saul and his family's ability to threaten David's rule. Being crippled in his feet barred him from the throne. Why is that the case? Well, in that day, if you were king, you were responsible to personally lead your troops into battle. And so a lame and crippled king could not do that. Of course, we know that lame and crippled people have as much worth in the eyes of God as any other. But in this particular task, he could not be king because it was the king's responsibility to lead his troops into battle. The narrator knows that, and he expects his readers to know that. Now, keep in mind... In 1 Samuel 31, Saul has already been killed in battle and three of his sons. And now we read that a grandson who could have potentially been king is crippled in his feet. 2 Samuel 4 is revealing to us the absolute weakness of Saul's house. In verse 1, his remaining son, Ishbosheth, is a coward. He lacks courage. And in verse 4, his grandson lacks physical ability. God has made a promise to David. He's fulfilling that promise. He is a promise-keeping God. One of the greatest applications we can take from any passage is to behold the greatness of God so that your faith could be strengthened in him. All right? We're seeing the glory, the greatness of this God as he works providentially to bring about his promise to David. Now, in verse 5, he picks up as if verse 4 didn't even happen. Now, the sons of Reman, the Berethite, Rechab, and Baana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, Saul's remaining son, his only remaining son. And as he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. A heinous, wicked act. Verse 7, when they came into the house, 
He was, verse 7 is kind of a literary device. He re, the writer repeats himself with a little more detail to, to emphasize his point. It's like he's writing and he is revolted by what he's writing about. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and they put him to death and they beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. Tax doesn't tell us why Rechab and Baana murdered Ishbashev, but they certainly believed it was going to benefit them. Maybe it would benefit them financially. David would give them a, some kind of bounty, some kind of reward. It would certainly benefit them in the kingdom for David to know that they were Ishbosheth's enemies. But again, though this act is wicked, in God's providence, this is Psalm 2. This is Psalm 2 as we sang and as we've read. Ishbosheth had set himself up as a rival king to God's true anointed. And every king, every rival king that does that will be brought underneath the feet of God. He has now received his bloody judgment. But from another angle, this reminds us of Psalm 37, which I love Psalm 37 because David wrote that most people believe, most scholars believe at the end of his life. I love to sit at the feet of old men. They've been through the wars. They've, went through the, they've been through the battles. That's why there is glory in gray hair. And in Psalm 37, David, I'm sure even contemplating how he arose to his throne, says this in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. There's a lot of things we fret about when we're young that we no longer fret about when we're gray. Isn't that correct? You see a lot of things in perspective when you're older. Fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. That's David's reflection on the evildoers and on the wicked. Now notice with me in verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. These two men apparently, at least that was their front, believed that they were serving as the Lord's agents of divine vengeance against Saul and his offspring. Whatever they were thinking, perhaps they were just acting deceitfully. They didn't appear to be great theologians. They were crediting God with what was in fact a vile and wicked act. No doubt they believed that security in the kingdom and reward, perhaps monetary reward or land, awaited them for eliminating David's biggest rival. But their perception wasn't based on an accurate understanding, first of all, of David's theology, and secondly, of his respect for Saul and for Saul's family. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, the, the developing house of David. Even as Ishbosheth's house, Saul's house, has now met its demise, 
we see the developing house of David. Look with me in verse 9. But David answered Rechab, and Baana his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berothite. I love the historical language, the sons of Rimon. It just reminds us, this isn't some tale, some myth that we're reading. This happened in time and space. This is real history. And he answered them. Um, David well knew the Genesis story of Joseph. Without question, he would have had the Torah. He would have known the story. And David understood well that the Lord may and does use the wicked acts of men to advance his own purposes. David knew that. But it's naive presumption for the perpetrator of the evil to present his wicked act as a gift from God. As Romans 3 verse 8 makes clear, we should never do evil that good may come. And that's a very important principle because it's easy to get pragmatic. If I do this, even if it's a violation of the word of God, this better thing will occur. God forbid that we think that way. Again, we are reminded of David's men earlier who had supposed that the, the opponents of Saul and given the opportunity to kill Saul was God's gift to David. We're reminded there. Remember when his nephew, Abishai, believed, we've got him in our sights. We can kill him. This is from the hand of God. And David had refused then. Indeed, David's response was nothing like these two men believed uh, it would be. Uh, what he said, what he did... In fact, he's going to give three staggering statements that rained on any kind of optimism that they had. I mean, he crushes it with three statements. And I want you to notice the, the first statement. He speaks of the king's Lord. So they're coming to him. They believe he's going to pat them on the back and give them a promotion in the kingdom or whatever it might be. And he says in the second part of verse 9, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So notice that, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every diversity. Saul may have wanted to kill David, but the Lord had redeemed his life. The, the, the lions and the bears may have wanted to kill David when he was a, a shepherd. But the Lord had redeemed him from the paws of the lions and the bears. 1 Samuel 17. Goliath may have wanted to kill David, but the Lord had delivered him from Goliath and from many other enemies. Chapter 18, verse 14. And this explains why David never sought to kill Saul. David trusted the Lord. We've seen that in our study, haven't we? Again, David had learned, Psalm 37, 1, not to fret evildoers. Verse 2, Psalm 37, verse 2, they will soon fade. So, Psalm 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That's what David had learned. And so when these men bring the head of Ishbosheth to him, he's revolted by that. He's revolted. They had used a, a wicked act to bring about what they perceived to be what David had desired. And though David certainly had lapses of faith, and we, we're going to see more lapses of faith as we continue in 2 Samuel, as a pattern, David knew he did not need to act unrighteously in order to become king. Just like when Abraham and Sarai were barren. God had promised them a son. And 
then you had this period of waiting. And so they reason, God needs our help. And so he has an illicit encounter with Hagar. And there's been chaos ever since in the Middle East. God does not need our help. We don't need to compromise in order to bring about his good and glorious purposes. What David teaches us here, he simply waits for the Lord to give him the kingdom in God's timing, in God's way. Such an important word for us. The second thing he says, he spoke about the king's Lord. We see in verse 10, the king's reward. Verse 10, this is not going to be what they want. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead. So he takes them back in history and thought he was bringing good news. Remember that? That was the Amalekite. Remember that? He thought he was bringing good news when he came and told me Saul was dead because at the time the Amalekite also claimed to be the one who killed Saul. He was probably lying, but he wanted reward. He wanted recompense from from David. David said, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So David saw this correspondent set of events immediately. To really come to terms, though, with the virtue of what David is exemplifying here, we must recognize how much relief Ishbosheth's murder would have been to David. He's been anointed king, and yet there is chaos in the kingdom. There, there's been a civil war, and there's still very, most of the majority tribes are, have been beholden to Ishbosheth. How in the world is David going to become king over all the tribes? So there must have been some kind of relief, even though he was revolted by the murder. But David knew that God had promised him to be king. He was promise driven. And so to depend on wickedness to bring this about would have been to deny God's sufficiency for meeting David's needs. But where did David learn this? Where did he learn rest and trust and contentment in his circumstances like he demonstrates here? It's clear in the waiting, in the wilderness, in the caves, in the trials where God was teaching him his sufficiencies. God was teaching him that he he keeps his promises. That's where David had learned it. In Psalm 131, David gives us a, a colorful description of what it means to learn stillness. I think this is so important. This is a Psalm of David. And, and I think he gives us some, an autobiographical sketch in Psalm 31 to help us come to terms with how one comes to this place where he was just trusting the Lord to bring it about as impossible as it looked. In Psalm 131, he portrays his experience in his life, in his trials, in terms of a child being weaned from his mother from a milk diet. In fact, in verse 2, it says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That, that was a, that's a picture of the struggle that David had gone through in the, in the trials, in the waiting, in the wilderness before he came to this place where he said, I, I'm like a weaned child, a contented child, a child who is at rest. But what was the struggle all about? 
David suggests in that Psalm, Psalm 131, two big issues that needed to be settled in his life. Two big issues that need to be settled in every person's life that's here this morning. And once those issues were settled, he came to that place that we see exemplified in 2 Samuel 4. The first issue was holy ambition. Psalm 131, verse 1, the very first phrase, notice, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, ambition in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. God had anointed David to be the, the king of Israel. And that had become an ambition of David's. But he had a greater ambition. All of us have these desires, these ambitions. David's was to be king, given to him by God himself. But he had come to have a greater ambition than that, to trust in God's provision, to trust in God's timing, to trust in God's placing. All right? There had been times when David could have seized the position, he could have seized power by means that would have betrayed his faith. For example, Saul came into the, the very cave where David and his men were hiding. 1 Samuel 24. And in 1 Samuel 26, David and his nephew, Abishai, go into Saul's tent while he's asleep. In both occasions, he could have killed Saul. But David was content to live by the directives of the word of God and to wait for God's timing, to wait for God's provision. And so we learn from Psalm 131 that a believer's contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to be at the Lord's disposal. In fact, until you're there, you're not ready for what God has birthed in you desire-wise. You're not ready for it. To be at his disposal at the time, the place that he chooses. I love this quote from Robert Murray McShane. It has always been my aim, and it is my prayer to have no plans with regard to myself. Isn't that a good word? To have no plans with regard to myself. He had learned holy ambition. That's why he didn't have to manipulate the circumstances. God had made a promise. God was going to be faithful to that promise no matter what the circumstances appeared. Second thing that David had to resolve in his weaning was unhealthy preoccupations. Again, notice the second part of verse 1 of Psalm 131. That's on the board. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David did not allow himself to be overly preoccupied with what God was not pleased to grant him now or reveal to him now. Such preoccupations stifle contentment. They stifle and smother rest of soul. If I demand on knowing exactly what God's doing and what God is going to do with my life, what his plans are for me, if I demand on knowing what he's already done in my life, I will never be content until I'm equal with God. Again, David's example of waiting encourages us to wait on the Lord to fulfill his purpose for us and that he will defend our interest as kingdom children. For those who have entered the kingdom by the new birth, we are kingdom children. And this great king will defend our interest. We must rest in that. And that's what makes, going back to our text, these two murderers' claims so ironic 
and, and so wrongheaded. They were claiming, again, notice in verse 8, they were claiming to be David's redeemer, saying, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. And that brings us to the third statement that David gives them. He spoke about the Lord's king, the Lord's reward, or, or the king's uh, Lord, the king's reward. And here we see the king's judgment. That brings us to the last part of this passage. How much more, he says, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Again, he reminds them, there was an Amalekite came to me and he claimed to bring good news of Saul's death. He claimed to have killed Saul. There's something even more wicked than that. Wicked men who kill a righteous man and in this particular case, I don't think that he's saying that Ishbosheth is a godly man. He is saying that the actions, his character, his, his life did not warrant vigilante murder while he is laying in bed. I think that's what he's saying. Uh, these wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and you see mercy at work here, and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Hebron being that place where the, the patriarchs had been buried. David's decision to put them to death was consistent with what he had done with the Amalekite. But more importantly, it was consistent with the law. The law says that murders are to be put to death. It's capital punishment. Incidentally, not to be political, capital punishment is biblical. Uh, one of the laws of retribution is proportionality. A crime, a penalty should be proportionate to the crime. And as the king, he had the authority to put these men to death. And every micro-justice, every micro-justice we see with David is a foretaste of a macro-justice that his great descendant will secure to the ends of the earth. Isn't that hopeful? Isaiah 9, verse 7, he speaks of this one who will come. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Perfect righteousness, a perfect justice. One of the elephants in the room is that David had not judged his nephew Joab who deserved the same judgment as the two men. David's judgments, David's righteousness was not perfect. But there's one who's coming that will be a perfect justice, a perfect righteousness rendered. And this is a hope for us to hold on to in the face of severe injustice that believers experience in the world. We're experiencing it here to a certain degree as certain politicians seek to continue to squeeze our liberties, but not like we see it in the world with our brothers and sisters in other places. This week I was looking at open doors. Listen to these statistics of injustice on believers over 245 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution. Let me just tell you, a lot of the, the stuff that gets us up in knots in local church where there's just people always upset about this decision or this decision, trust me, 
when you're being persecuted like that, it kind of streamlines what upsets us. And we have Western first, you know, country problems. Second thing that I saw is 4,305 Christians have been killed for their faith over the last year. 4,305 Christians over the past year have been killed for their faith. Injustice because of their faith. 1,847 churches and other Christian buildings have been destroyed in the past year. 3,150 believers this year, the past year, were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or even imprisoned. Of course, we have injustices here, and whatever those injustices are, the, the people of God can be assured that the time will come when the great shoot, the great root of Jesse will establish a Hebron-like justice throughout the world. And David's act of justice made clear that he did not want or need the help of murderous conspirators in advancing his career. With that said, though, Saul's kingdom now is officially done. That brings us to 2 Samuel 5 next time. It's done. Certainly in God's infinite wisdom and power, God uses wicked deeds. Again, he has an asymmetrical relationship with wickedness uh, and that which he affects as good. He uses wicked deeds, the very deeds he hates, the very deeds he judges, but he uses them to advance his purposes. The evil of these two men accomplished God's purpose despite the evil of these two men. And God's purpose is what? To enthrone David. That's what he had promised. In other words, Genesis 50 verse 20, what these two men intended for evil, God meant for good. And it reminds me, as we close here, of another evil event, one that's even more evil than we, what we see in 2 Samuel 4, that leads to another enthronement, one even greater than David's. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples declare they lifted their voices together to God, verse 24, and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, that which we sang this morning, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. It was all vain. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod. Notice the participants, the conspirators here. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That has everybody covered. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I want you to note the tension here. All right? Human culpability. Four parties are indicted. All right? And God is sovereign. The word there that's used, predestined. The Lord had predestined this. That is the cross. The Lord predestined the cross. All right? If either truth is minimized, you lose the gospel. If... We minimize their culpability. That these people were culpable for their sin and their rebellion, it makes the, the cross unnecessary. If you minimize their culpability because God was sovereign over it, it makes their sin 
just the product of puppets. But they're culpable. And without that culpability, it makes the cross unnecessary. But if you take away divine sovereignty, because these people were culpable, it makes the cross an unfortunate accident in history. And either way, you lose the gospel. And so here we see, like we saw in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, that sinners were culpable, sinners were responsible, and yet it did not thwart God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan was to bring about the cross so that sinners like us, who were there, we were as guilty as anyone else nailing him to the cross because it was our sin that nailed him there. Sinners like us who are much more like greedy vigilantes, like the two men in our text, than we are the God we were created to image. This Christ was nailed to a cross, absorbing the wrath that we deserve. All the while, God was sovereign. God was working to bring about his glorious kingdom in. And what is that? Our salvation. As a result, like David, knowing that God has taken our greatest problem, our sin and guilt, and nailed it to the cross, we can say with David in Psalm 138, he will fulfill his purpose for me. And that's why we can rest. That's why we can trust. That's why we don't have to have unhelpful preoccupations with what God is doing. That's why we can have holy ambition. Because God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. It's a dark text. It's a heavy text. And yet we believe with every text that we can glean, that our faith can be strengthened, our hope and our love can be nourished by beholding you in the face of your anointed son. And Lord, I pray if there's any here today that's never trusted in the Son, I pray that today would be a day in which they would bow their knee to Jesus. And Lord, I would love to speak to them. I pray they would have the freedom to come and speak to me either now or during or after the service. And we pray that this word would just do a work of nourishment so that your people may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.